0: Next, this month's special series, Focus on Geriatric Medicine and Aging. ReachMD talks to experts about new thinking and innovations in the treatment of conditions of the aging body and mind. Help is on the way for men and their families. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. Marianne Legato, Professor of Clinical Medicine at Columbia University. She is also the author of the best-selling book, Why Men Never Remember and Women Never Forget. Thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Dr. Pickett.
0: We're going to be discussing your most recent book, Why Men Die First, How to Lengthen Your Lifespan. Dr. Legata, when you wrote this book, who was the audience that you hoped to appeal to?
1: I wanted to write directly to men... I'm against the patronizing attitude of women that says men are not concerned about their health and they never see the doctor. I think men do tend to see the doctor only in crises, but then so do some women. So this book is written directly to and for men, which doesn't mean that the women who love them can't read the book and profit from it and help their male relatives to survive longer.
0: Our audience is 90% physicians and other medical professionals. How do you see this audience using your book to its best advantage?
1: Well, I think there is new information to most physicians, I hope, about the vulnerability of males from the time they're conceived. The fact is that many more of them are conceived than are actually born, and little girls have a lot more success in actually exiting the womb than boys. The whole question of the present state function and the future of the Y chromosome and the nature of the Y chromosome is gone into in detail, which I think will be of interest for most people. And then the whole spectrum of developmental pits, if you will, into which males fall, particularly death by suicide and violence during their teenage years. I've tried to explain the reasons for that and how it isn't all socioeconomic. It has to do with a disconnect between their high testosterone levels and their rather rudimentary relative to their sister's prefrontal cortex, which is, as you know, concerned with judgment and decision making. So the risk taking of these young boys is really a terribly important factor for us to watch.
0: Do you think this risk factor tendency continues into adulthood?
1: Yes, I do. I think men are taught by society to suck it up. I think their higher testosterone levels diminishes their experience of pain, makes them combative or competitive, helps them focus on achieving a goal no matter what the obstacles And So I think that this tendency, uh, if you don't believe me, watch boxing or other sports and look at the occupations men choose and the way they perform under terrible conditions during war, I really think they are vulnerable.
0: Do you think that the Weekend Warrior also incorporates this into their attitudes?
1: (laughs) That's a great question. Of course. I had not put that together, but I do think that's true, Dr. Pickett.
0: There are certain stages, certainly, that the male goes through that are certainly different than female. Certainly, giving up one's career seems to have a greater effect on men. You wrote about this in your book. How would you characterize this?
1: Well, I think socially, we still look, if you talk to hundreds of patients, as I have, women still assess their value in terms of their ability to establish a family. And even the most successful career women, with a few exceptions, obviously, regret no matter what their achievement if they haven't had children and a successful relationship. Men see themselves in terms of what they do, and they measure their value by that, and I think that's cultural and societal for sure, at least in part. So when a man retires and is left with his, let's say, 90% of his feeling of value and worth and how to occupy his time and what to look forward to, when all of that disappears, I think he is very vulnerable.
0: I was intrigued by your statement about secondary caregivers, that how important they can be in a family, especially a single-parent family. I think you mentioned that the secondary caregiver plus the single-parent family often has the same success rate as an intact family. Are men missing this opportunity?
1: I think that's a very important point, and I think that do you mean the men raising their own children alone?
0: I was No, I was really referring to the role of a grandparent, that nobody can be a grandparent other than a grandparent, and are they missing an opportunity to be part of the support system in a single-parent family?
1: Unfortunately, I think our society does not foster the concept of a nuclear family. I mean, of a uh, group family. And I think it discards the elderly and their experience and their fantastic interest in their grandchildren much too readily. And I think other societies, such as in India, for example, where people live in a much more communal fashion, have less depression, particularly in women, which I find very interesting. Uh, I think that the elderly have experience, they have judgment and they are not buffeted by the high hormonal levels and the other distracting tasks that younger parents have to contend with, like earning money, etc. And I think they're a tremendous addition to the household. I think this would be a wonderful place to incorporate a retired grandfather just as it would a retired grandmother, and I think it would give help to the family and more meaning to the older patient's life.
0: I remember when Ronald Reagan began to wear a hearing aid for the first time, and actually this was very unique. No president had ever worn a hearing aid. His generation grew up with a real stigma associated with hearing aids, certainly not the same as wearing glasses. And I remember feeling what a great thing he did for our seniors by showing that a president could wear a hearing aid and still be very, very competent. We use a lot of words in the medical profession, such as dwindles and failure to thrive.
1: Yes, I have that in my book.
0: I know. That is why I'm mentioning it, and it's so depreciating to our seniors in particular.
1: That's a very interesting and good comment. People do resist hearing aids as a sign of having crossed some Rubicon of age that to them is a terrible stigma that they're less valuable than they were before. I try to tell them that people who do not use hearing aids when they need them miss a great deal of the conversation going on around them, and they are written off as stupid or losing it, quote-unquote, when in fact they just can't hear what's going on. And so I think the newer hearing aids, which are really almost undetectable, the in the canal hearing aids and the light hearing aids that sit atop the ear, are very important, and I think those people who feel that they need hearing assistance or whose family tell them that they're losing their hearing absolutely should consider just a try of these aids so that they don't become marginalized. You
0: use a term in your book, and I'd like to really go into detail on it, called andropause. How do you use this term?
1: Andropause is the term given, and perhaps it's more public relations, if you will, than a medical term at this point. But what it refers to is the gradual loss of testosterone that men experience as they age. It is not the rather abrupt and sometimes cataclysmic loss of estrogen that women experience at the time of their menopause. And it doesn't happen at an entirely predictable rate in every man. But this gradual diminution in testosterone is tremendously important, as is the situation with aging women. These men lose muscle mass. They lose the ability to tolerate pain as well. They become irritable. They tend to become depressed and become quite dependent on their significant others. There are women in my practice who say that their husbands, who are getting older, are really impossible, that they wish that the husbands would just stop following them around the house and begging to go on every errand with them so ultimately at the end of our lives we resemble each other very very much in that very elderly men will in fact have hot flashes just like women and if you have read this part of the book i mentioned that i was at a dinner party with two octogenarians and one said to the other hot flashes i never had hot flashes and the other man looked up from his soup, and he said, just wait.
0: So you've probably given me an explanation why I'm beginning to look like my wife. And, we, <laughs> and uh, we have many, many friends who've been married for many years, and we look at them and say, gee, that's really strange. They really look like each other.
1: Right. Well, our dogs look like us too, don't you? That's
0: right. Yeah. That's right. There are other terms that people have used, androgen deficiency of an aging male, or ADAM, or symptomatic late-onset hypogonadism, slow. But I guess they all refer to the same thing. What I was struck by is, uh, in the literature, how androgen treatment is becoming so widespread. Certainly the Mitchell Committee brought this to the forefront. I mean, some men just read the sport page first, certainly first. And we're struck by how this is permeating our whole society. I read someplace that 2 to 3% of all 7th grade males are using some type of androgen. Do you feel that testosterone has any kind of place in treatment and where?
1: I think it's a very, very complicated question, and I've learned a great deal from my colleague, Dr. Harry Fish, who is the head of an institute at Columbia University who pays particular attention to this problem in men. We are very reluctant to replace testosterone in aging males if their testosterone levels are normal. And we think that the use of testosterone is probably greatly overdone. And the first and most important thing is to test testosterone levels in men who are aging and whose complaints may or may not be explained by low hormonal levels.
0: In what percentage of men who have some of this symptom complex do you think actually are testosterone deficient or low in DHE?
1: I would say less than 30 percent.
0: Certainly the clinics that uh, we see advertised to prevent aging in males have really capitalized this on the use of this drug as well as growth hormone. How do you feel about the latter drug?
1: My experts at Columbia and Johns Hopkins, and the literature seem to indicate that there is no demonstrative benefit from that hormone.
0: The other thing that you go into is osteoporosis. Are we ignoring this diagnosis in men?
1: I think so, and as you know, we owe a great deal of our awareness of osteoporosis in men to my colleague, Dr. John Bilizikian, who has been one of the foremost proponents of the exploration of the pathophysiology of osteoporosis, and he pointed out years ago that fully 25% of all known cases of osteoporosis occur in men, and this is not just a woman's disease. I think bone mass should be tested just as it is in women, in aging men who have had a fracture, in men of any age who have taken steroids habitually, and in men who for any reason might have uh, bone fragility.
0: Finding osteoporosis in men, then how would you recommend treating them?
1: Just as it's treated in women, calcium replacement, levels of vitamin B, D uh, should be tested and replenished. Whether or not they have hyperparathyroidism should be investigated. And finally, they, like women, I think, profit from bisphosphonate treatment
0: and probably weight bearing exercises and and a good diet. Certainly would be would be lifestyle
1: remedies. Yes.
0: In reading your book, I was intrigued by the fact that you have referred to uh, people as we get older as the keeper of history. Do we not give enough attention to this group of people who are really the keeper of, hi- of our histories and how important it is for this keeper of our history to pass it on to the generations behind us?
1: Well, of course, this has been through the millennia our only source of a uh, common memory has been oral history, and that's what poetry was about in the Middle Ages, and that's why poetry, we think, was conceived, as were songs that recounted the common history of the tribe or the group. I think that any grandchild will tell you that the stories their grandparents tell them, particularly as they get older, are remarkably rich in anecdote that are very enriching for the child. The child incorporates that into his own memory and his own behavior often, and I think they find it very enriching.
0: Today we've talked about many of the interesting facts that would be of benefit to men to make them feel better about themselves and find a place for themselves as they age. The book, Why Men Die First?, How to Lengthen Your Lifespan is filled with many pearls to enrich our lives. And I want to thank Dr. Marianne Legato for being with us. This has been a very informative session, and I encourage everyone to look at her book and to read it. Thank you very much. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Geriatric Medicine and Aging. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, visit us at reachmd.com.